Welcome to an episode of the Tiffa Mahapi Show hosted by myself. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. I believe that opening businesses and, and the healthy capitalism without the corporations which destroy the environment, etc. I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. We thank you for taking some time out to listen to the podcast. On the 13th of August 2020, Apple announced that it had removed the Fortnite game from its App Store. This came after Epic Games, the makers of the popular Fortnite game, decided to offer Fortnite players the option to make in-game purchases directly by paying Epic Games, thus bypassing Apple's payment service. This also meant that Apple would lose out on the 30% commission it usually makes from every purchase through its App Store. Apple was swift with its ban, which was soon followed by Epic Games filing legal papers opposing the ban. Soon after that, Google, weirdly enough, also removed Fortnite from its Play Store. This legal battle appears set to shape the future of not only online app stores, but online marketplaces as well. The take rate has been what a lot of people have focused on terms of Apple's 30% and I think Google is similar. I think this is much more about the monopoly. I tend to agree with Ben, who is my guest on this episode of my podcast. The Apple versus Epic Games battle is much more than the commission and possibly more about Apple's app store as a perceived monopoly. Can you have a monopoly on a platform that is a minority market share in most markets? But let's call it what, in the sense of iOS, it is a monopoly. Do they move to a bit more of a Google model where you can do some degree of sideloading? Do they get forced to open up third-party app stores? Ben's story is quite interesting. He's an American who left the USA for South Africa, thanks to a big part to Twitter. He linked up with his now South African wife and partner, thanks to the social media platform. He now lives and works in South Africa as a product manager at one of the continent's largest entertainment companies. The history of the struggle here, in terms of my political beliefs, I have a lot of sympathy and admiration for the liberation movement in South Africa and the history. So I always felt a kind of connection in a kind of humanistic, universal sense to this place and what the country's been through. And so I think it was, there was something about when I was here uh, with her. In this episode, we also discuss another important trend that is looking like it will shape the future of software development and cloud services, specifically Amazon Web Services, better known as AWS. To borrow from Mark Andreessen's popular article in which he wrote that software is eating the world, it appears that AWS is now eating software. Before we get into the discussion I had with Ben, I want to tell you a little bit about Truehost.Africa, the sponsor of this episode of the Tifo Mohapi Show. Truehost.Africa offers domain names, web hosting, free website builders, and email solutions. As a listener of my podcast, you get a discount when purchasing anything at Truehost. Visit Truehost.Africa forward slash iAfrican. Remember, that's iAfrican with a K. Select the products you want and apply the discount code iAfrican. Don't forget, that's I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Ben. And I think something very important that I need to mention before we even start talking is that I remember sometime in, I think it was January of 2020, early weeks of January 2020, and you sent me a message and you were like, what are you doing regarding this virus? And I was quite surprised because I was like, what virus? 
And then you went on about the coronavirus and what's happening in China. And honestly, I dismissed it because in my mind, I thought uh, this is never going to hit us. And yet here we are. Yeah, it was, uh, I had a similar experience with a lot of friends and family. And I think for a few weeks there, I thought I was losing my mind. I was like, am I the only one here who's scared of this? Or am I like, actually, am I just buying into some hype or whatever? But as soon as I started hearing about it, I was like, "Uh oh, this doesn't sound good. I know we are not prepared as my home country in America or as a global system for something like this. So I was freaking out. I've gone through my freaking out phase earlier than some people. And then I think now just as sick of it as everybody else. So I don't know. I can't take it anymore. But so here we are. It's been really frustrating. I don't know how you're coping because I think you also had a newborn, but it's been extremely frustrating. Also added to the fact that most of it, you have to teach your kids at home and do all these Zoom calls, do all these meetings and do work at the same time. So how have you been coping? Yeah, I think I've had to get a better time management system than I've ever had to in my life before to manage the homeschooling, to manage the work calls, to have a marriage. So I've just had to get much more structured. But yeah, I consider myself lucky to be able to work from home or in an industry, in the entertainment industry, which is doing decently well. And uh, so it's been hard. It's been hard on us. The newborn was a lot. So was giving birth in the middle of a pandemic as well. I'm definitely fortunate and a lot of people are, are, are really struggling. So I, I count, my, count my blessings. Yeah, it's decimated a lot of industries and a lot of companies shutting down, jobs being lost. But you mentioned also that earlier your home country, America, doing yes. badly. Perhaps before we get into more serious discussions, <laughs> you, you could let us a little bit more in on what led you to come to South Africa. I think there's a Twitter story or social media yes. led you coming to South Africa. Yeah, so my, I've always been, this is how you and I met is, is on Twitter. And I've always, Twitter has always been my social network of choice. And it must have been in 2016 that I was flirting with who would soon to be my wife or eventually become my wife on Twitter, just liking tweets and replying flirtatiously. We had some common interests in terms of spirituality and some other things and a few common friends. And one thing led to another, slid into her DMs or I don't know, maybe she slid into mine. I'm not totally sure. But we quickly moved it over to Snapchat. From there, I was working at a startup in San Francisco and I ended up taking a, a holiday here to meet her in person. And from the rest was kind of history. I fell in love with her. I fell in love with the country and my new home. And I really do love it here. That's an interesting transition because commonly it's more like South Africans leave South Africa to go to Europe or Australia or America. But this is an American falling in love with South Africa. Just briefly, what made you decide on South Africa, apart from your wife, obviously, and wanting to start a family? What made you fall in love with the country? The history of the struggle here, in terms of my political beliefs, I have a lot of sympathy and admiration for the liberation movement in South Africa and the history. So I always felt a kind of connection in a kind of humanistic, universal sense to this place and what the country's been through. And so I think it was, there was something about when I was here uh, with her, I felt closer to the ground in some way, if that makes sense. I don't know what it was about. We were in Michalisburg. Something about the red clay dirt here. It felt like a, sort of a strange calling that I couldn't put into words. Yeah, I don't have a specific reason. There's many things that I love about the country. The people are incredible, friendly, hilarious also, like much better sense of humor than your average American. But uh, yeah, it's all things together. And at the same time, just falling in love with my wife. I can imagine. So it was more a deeper connection with the country, just as you say, something you explained. But yes. also, uh, I happen to know and 
this is not why you're on the podcast. You're also a product manager or product architect. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. In an entertainment type company, broadcasting company, because this is something that also interests me. What are some of the trends in South Africa, in the rest of the continent, compared to where you come from in America as far as broadcasting and the sort of the online streaming world goes? It's an interesting question. I think a lot of similar things are happening. I think the high cost of data is a sort of break on the adoption of things like OTT that countries like the US may be a bit further along in, although the average broadband speed in certain parts of the United States is not as high as you might think. But anyways, I think in the continent, the variety of different local storytelling opportunities and local storytelling traditions has changed, I think, what entertainment means for companies like a Netflix or an Amazon. I think the environment is, it's very different in terms of what stories resonate locally. I think everybody does have a good connection with the Hollywood and the British kind of content, celebrities and stories. But I think Africa is really coming into its own as a place with a long history of telling stories and with its own unique spin on them. And I think what we're seeing now is that local piece coming to the fore across the board. And I think all the players that are trying to get into Africa are realizing that you need to speak to what people care about in their lived experience and the stories that resonate with them. So I think one thing that I'm on the lookout for that I haven't quite seen yet is, and I'm interested in thinking about it, is what is the impact of things like esports going to be here? I think in America, we're seeing Twitch and esports eating into not just Netflix time or traditional TV time, but also things like regular sport. I would even go so far as to say yeah. that the younger generation isn't even getting into physical sports and they're in a lot of ways going into esports directly. So that's something I'm not as connected to when it comes to the African context at the moment, although I'm keeping an eye on it. And that's one of the areas where I'm very much interested to know what plays out. Will there be local game and esports titles that rise up here that yeah. uh, become bigger than a Fortnite or whatever for this market? It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I was just actually yesterday uh, on Friday reading a report by PwC on the esports market across uh, the continent. The first thing that comes up is that it's, as it is currently in 2019, it's mostly dominated by South Africa for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But to your question of what will dominate or what the trends will be, I think, and it's not gaming, will become popular. And that will dictate the type of platforms that emerge out of that. So as much as Twitch is popular in the Western world, mm -hmm. will it work when most of the players are on mobile phones? Things like that. And that also dictates what type of games will be popular that can be played on, a, on an esports league on a form factor of a phone. Will it be your typical Fortnite, which work on mobile, but will they still resonate with the majority of us? I don't know. It's one of the things I also think about, and it's fascinating because I think it will be a huge market. Yeah, the mobile, that's a great point. Mobile is king everywhere, but in, in Africa, it's even bigger relative to things like desktop or consoles than it is, for example, in Europe or the US. So I think there are some mobile native esports entrants. I think there's a MOBA called Vainglory made by a company called Super Evil Megacorp that is like a 
their whole mission was to create a Dota 2 or a League of Legends, but totally native to mobile. So not just like a port, not just a sort of multi-platform play, but but something that was focused on mobile. Mobile night. Yeah, but what's interesting about that, though, is that Fortnite does challenge that assumption because I think Fortnite was basically took the approach of platform agnostic. Less, yeah, mobile, we're going to focus on mobile. We're going to make mobile work for people. But there's a jack of all trades. They're basically everywhere. So instead of just a mobile first approach, they took a kind of everything approach. Whether that is going to be a sustainable one based on all these fights they're picking with, with the app stores and with the platform providers, we'll have to see. But yeah, it's a very interesting space. And I think you're spot on in that the constraints of the device, the constraints of bandwidth, and just the way that people use technology, it's sure to shape when you go up a layer into what games resonate, what types of communities resonate, what types of consumption and remixing environments resonate. It all flows from the base upwards in a way. Yeah. Another example is Minecraft. As much as Minecraft is available on mobile, it is so much a better experience on a console or on a PC or on a MacBook than if you play on a mobile phone. You can do so much better. So I think, yes, that will determine a lot of going into the future. But going back to the question of Fortnite, as we speak, they're involved in, in a few legal disputes with not a few specifically two legal disputes one with apple and the other with google and just for the listeners who might not have been following this legal dispute they're having what happened is that uh, fortnite or the owner of fortnite epic games decided to enable a feature within fortnite ios devices which allowed ios users when they're playing the game to pay fortnite directly for in-app purchases at a much cheaper price i think that's also what ticked off apple and as a result, Apple went on to kick Fortnite off the apps, and that was followed a few hours later by Google kicking off uh, Fortnite off their Play Store. And in retaliation, Fortnite have gone on to file some legal paper against Apple and Google. But one of the key things that popped up, and you are aware of, and you can perhaps expand on this, is Fortnite is not only fighting being kicked off. They're arguing also one of the key points, among many others, is that Apple should allow other game makers, or not just game makers, anyone to load their own app store on their devices. The take rate has been what a lot of people have focused on in terms of Apple's 30%. And I think Google is similar. And what that does structurally to business models across the board, there's lots of debates. Does it hurt indie developers more than it hurts big developers? I think it depends on what business they're in. Uh, But that question is honestly less interesting to me. Are they going to extract concessions from Apple to lower the take rate? Then the one that you just raised, which was, I think this is much more about the monopoly. And I'm using that in quotes because it's a very contested term here in terms of, does Apple have an app store monopoly on iOS? Can you have a monopoly on a platform that is a minority market share in most markets? But let's call it what, in the sense of iOS, it is a monopoly. Does that, do they move to a bit more of a Google model where you can do it? some degree of sideloading? Do they get forced to open up third-party app stores? Whether those are literal apps, full-blown built in native iOS, or even things I think which are a bit more subtle, which they're, they're also having fights about. Things like mini programs, things like Snap Minis. So these more kind of bite-sized, typically built on web technologies, but very fully featured almost app store or app environments where a variety of business models might proliferate advertising, transactions, a platform tax. But those things, I think they are much more about what comes after this mobile 
major S-curve we've been riding. And I've been saying for some time now that we are starting to approach a point where smartphones and smartphone operating systems are becoming commoditized. Now, no one can really buy something in terms of the scale and quality of iOS off the shelf as a white label operating system. So there are real technical limitations to what can be done. And there's differences between rolling your own complete OS from the kernel up between that and let's say doing an Android open source fork and things like kind of these UI layers that Android uh, phones like the OnePlus others have, but almost a kind of extra UI and services layer on top of Android. So there's a lot of gradation here in the space we're talking about, but I think the, the overall theme is these are abstraction leaks that are opening up in our core duopoly of iOS and Android. You have WeChat in China with mini programs. You've got companies in the West trying to become the WeChat of the West, Snap with their minis. And Epic, I think itself is as Matthew Ball, who's write some very interesting things about Epic's grand strategy and how they're much bigger than just Fortnite with their gaming engine, et cetera. I have a, a hunch that they are also sniffing around in terms of not just a game store. I think that would be the obvious next step, but what else are they thinking in terms of their own house party? And so I think there, you can squint a little bit and you can see them, I think, going... Tim Sweeney has some master plan here. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I know it's not about the 30% cut. There's something else that he's trying, a set of dominoes he's trying to knock over and I'm scratching my head trying to game it all out because he seems to have. The, the press release, the lawsuit, everything was loaded up as soon as they got banned. So I wonder what the, what the next few moves are going to be. What's interesting, and, and I think you're right, because I don't think it's a game store that they're playing at because that's, that seems too obvious. And I don't think it would make a huge difference to their bottom line because already outside iOS, they've got a, a big community. What gives me an idea at what they're playing at is the type of support they're garnering around other. The latest company to join in supporting them is Facebook. And that sort of raised my eyebrows to say, whoa, what's going on here? And maybe it speaks to what you're saying. This is opening up. So I, I could see Facebook wanting to have their own store on iOS offering what they offer on Facebook. Just got banned. Facebook just got some kind of, I believe it was that they had to remove their instant games, which are essentially HTML5 games. They had an instant games store in their Facebook gaming app, I think is what happened. Yeah. Apple basically said, you violated, it's not simply the, the kind of in-app transactions uh, piece that it was the issue with Facebook, nor do I think, by the way, that's what's in in Epic and Apple's heads about this fight. App Store Rule 4.7, which basically says you can't have an app store, an app that acts as an app store uh, primarily. And I think Facebook gaming, even though that the instant games were available in Messenger, Facebook gaming was a little too close to a pure almost game store for Apple's taste. And they they basically forced Facebook to, to take it out or they blocked it or something. On the other side, I partly sympathize with Apple as well. There's nothing you can buy off the shelf that has the scale and, and quality of iOS at the moment. And even from a consumer side, one of the things that makes Apple devices desirable and premium is because of the quality control, if I can put it that way. And by enabling, and I can see their argument, as you mentioned, the rule 4.7, I can see their argument being that the moment we let any app come in that bypasses the app store, 
we lose that quality control that users rely on us for. Yeah, it was a, a very, I would think, a pretty well-worn bit of conventional wisdom that Apple's App Store model fundamentally changed software. If Back in 2005, 6, 7, we still had rampant spyware. People didn't trust app stores like CNET.com. And there was, there was all these different ways you could get scammed online. Putting your credit card in for, for stuff was a bit of a doozy. And so that consumer trust back then was quite low in running your life online in any meaningful way. But I'm not totally sure if the argument fully holds up in 2020. Someone pointed out that App Review, which is the service that Apple provides for its community, and part of how they justify that 30% cut in all the App Store rules is like, everything goes through us. And that's how we ensure quality for customers. And that's how we ensure safety and privacy abuses are at least curtailed. But someone pointed out the widespread use of things like feature flagging on the server side is basically like, it's not an open secret. It's just best practice. It's just how the industry works. And Apple really cannot review every possible implication of a feature flag, especially for these large apps like Facebook and Snapchat and and Twitter. How much that argument holds water anymore in 2020, I think is an open question when it comes to things like how consumer trust has evolved. I think people are now, the phone is now like an extension of their body and for better or for worse, they do trust computers now, broadly speaking, even if they might be a bit suspicious, they put down credit cards for things, they buy things, they buy subscriptions, they, they install apps. And then how much is Apple really able to, to control when you have things like these server-side uh, changes and even some of the stuff that's come out in terms of TikTok and very advanced fingerprinting and encrypted fingerprinting and all this stuff that they're able to do, is Apple really able to give the attention to detail that, that they say they can? And I think it's doubtful. Now, there is an argument to be said that, okay, but it's more of if someone really badly behaves, Apple can punish them by yanking it. And so it's like a deterrent, less so than like, you know, will stop abusive behavior at the point of app review always. But yeah, it's an argument that I think has made a lot of sense over the years. But this is my point about things evolving. Times are different. Smartphones are different. It's not about really these indie small app developers and a cool new app coming out and everyone getting onto it. That does happen, but really it's about these giant apps that this handful of apps that you use every day. And did you discover TikTok through the app store or did you just discover TikTok via the, the massive upswell of on social media or whatever it might be? So the role of point. Apple in the app store environment is not, it's not necessarily what it used to be. Yeah, that's a good point you make about app discovery. But the one that's even more important for me is how things are evolving. As you mentioned, you used the example of app discoveries and discovering apps on app stores. And now it's become, if I can use the word, decentralized. You discover it through instant messaging or on social media, or you see something interesting and then you become curious and you find the app yourself. One thing that's also evolving and transforming is how we interact. You said mobile phones have become like, part of our bodies but also how we interact with them is evolving it used to be text but now we've seen with apple's introduction of siri several years ago even though they've somehow not managed to improve siri in my opinion we've seen more and more voice assistants coming to the fore and that seems to be transforming and evolving how we interact with phones yeah i think one of the key things that smartphones did 
that mobile did, they were the most personal device that we'd ever owned. And that sounds like a uh, empty cliche, but when you unpack it, you start to realize that the phone is a kind of one-to-one representation of your digital self and channel to yourself in a way that the computer just never could be because it, first of all, it was never always with you. You were logging in, you'd come online in AOL or MSN, you'd go online, but the phone is basically with you. So it, it almost proxies yourself to the world, which has a lot of negative implications, but there's a lot of stuff that can be built on that type of understanding. For example, all the different sensors, like Uber is something that could be technically done on desktop. I actually think you can, at this point now, request a ride from desktop potentially. I I think I remember that being possible, but certainly a network of, a liquid network of riders and drivers with the drivers driving around and and also riders on the move. It just, it it was impossible. It didn't make any sense in, in the desktop world, but in mobile where you have this kind of digital proxy or this like digital twin with you at all times, it makes a lot of sense. So those sensors and in those sensors, I, I include the camera, I include the microphone, and those sensors have become not simply side features that are bolted on to apps that could have been built on the desktop like they were at the beginning. You always recreate the last computing paradigm at the beginning of the next one. And a little, I'm trying to remember what the App Store looked like back in 2010, but it was a lot of sort of desktop software scrunched into mobile. Whereas what we've been seeing over the last several years has been the kind of normalization and the widespread adoption of things which could only really be possible on mobile, only be worth doing on mobile. Things like Uber or camera-driven communication tools like a Snapchat. And like you mentioned, voice as an input modality and output modality. You have things like the proliferation of AirPods and other kind of audio consumption headphone devices that are making it even more seamless to consume audio, to pick up phone and call someone and more and more to interact with some kind of voice or multimodal assistance. So I think the the thing that people need to understand about voice or about AR is that these things are not separated from mobile. They, They build on top, right? It's everything emerges from the basis of what was there before in terms of the technology and in terms of the customer habits and behaviors that lay the groundwork for what comes on top. So now in the, well, NLU technology, AR technology, as these things get better, as these things get commoditized, as these things become delivered as APIs for developers to to leverage and not just the first party, you know, smartphone OS manufacturer making a nice clever feature, we're starting to see that migration, as I say, up the stack from the lower level commerce, payments, some of these things that mobile solves uniquely for us, uh, geolocation, et cetera, to the sensors that maybe could never really be done anywhere but mobile, like the camera, like gyroscope, like having a microphone and a speaker with you at all times. And now what we're starting to see is these new experiences coming out on top using various different of these modalities to do new things. I think probably the best example of of this is, is Hey Snapchat, which is their new, vo- almost a voice assistant for Snapchat, powered by SoundHound, where you say stuff like, hey, make my hair pick. Now, it's very fun. It's, it's very, just like in typical Snap, the soul of that company, it's playful. It's like a toy. 
to begin with. Yep. But combining that input and that conversation with an AI layered with that visual feedback and then the camera input and, and an output, those things coming together are going to be, I think, where we see hints of what comes after smartphones. So it's not that smartphones go away. In fact, even in like an AR glasses world or an AirPods world, the, the smartphone maybe becomes more of like a hub and a kind of a processor in your pocket and as home base for those different peripheral wearables. So these things that get built on, they don't go away. They just become, they become invisible. They become, they don't really matter anymore. It's not that they don't matter. It's that they're, they matter so much that they are now boring and assumed and baked into the cake. It's like in enterprise tech where the things that matter eventually move off to the back office. So the smartphone, if I can use that analogy, the smartphone literally moves into the background, into a back office of sorts and runs all these things in our lives. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that's where this epic fight with Apple is very interesting, right? Because Apple is really holding on to, for now at least, the iPhone as the center of your life, as their main business. They're trying to move more into services, although I have lots of critiques of mostly those services seem to be like rent seeking, as opposed to like really innovating in areas like Siri. To answer your question, to bring it back to Epic and, and Apple, that's why this fight between them is so interesting. It's happening precisely at the time when the smartphone, to use your, your analogy there, is becoming the back office of consumer tech. And so I think what Epic is seeing is that, hey, wait a minute, if our users are spending all their time in, in our environment or, or in things like Twitch, and they're, what is the real role of, of an Apple in, in that world? And especially for like Generation Z, there's a few apps that they care deeply about. They want those apps. But do they really need the entire app store? Do they really need the like 75 different to-do list apps that I torture myself switching every week between? Is the mass of people, they really need this same kind of app store paradigm that was totally necessary in the beginning stages of mobile. But as the smartphone becomes basically a thing that is assumed in your life, and as all the interesting stuff is happening further and further up the stack not just in terms of things like the games that you're playing and the social networks you're using, but like I said, some of these more AI and intelligence-driven features and, and services. What is the role of an Apple who is a vertically integrated, they differentiate on the basis of this vertical integration, software, services, hardware. Are they potentially in a, an interesting pivot point here that Epic is poking at where the iPhone is the great, it's like the great, Benedict Evans has a really, an article that I always refer back to mentally, which was, he called it the best is last. And I think it was like a, a historical parable of, of a warship or, or something like that. Like the, the kind of, it might've been blimps or, I forget exactly what it was, honestly, but some historical transition, maybe it was the gold, uh, gold encrusted uh, horse and carriages. But basically the idea is like, we have the perfect iteration of a technology, broadly defined, that is widely adopted. We have that perfect iteration just at the precise time when it becomes either obsolete or invisible. And I think we're getting to that point with smartphones where all the differentiation, all the things that matter, all the new value that's being created, that is all happening in, in, further and further from Apple's remit. A good point that you raise, it's... I think we underestimate just looking at typical iPhone, even if you go back a few versions to an iPhone 7, you look at the specs they have and you look at things like laptops and what they have and what you can do on your smartphone. Despite the form factor, it's just amazing. And to your point, we've reached the point where it's coming extremely difficult 
especially to your point of commoditization, it's becoming extremely difficult to differentiate between, especially at the high end level, between a Samsung S whatever and an app, the latest Apple iPhone from a specs point of view, because there's only so much that the different manufacturers can do. And the bigger problem for Apple is less the Samsung indistinguishability because Apple does have, they have their Apple ecosystem, which still is itself differentiated. Their real problem is what's the difference between the iPhone 9? I don't even know what iPhone we're on anymore. I actually forgot what, you know, I haven't bought one in two years and, and Apple's upgrade cycles continue to lengthen. So I think the, the where we were with hardware, I think actually two or three years ago, maybe even more than that start of the kind of peter out. Now there are new mini S curves that are coming off of it that are very important, like the camera hardware, which is necessary for some of these AR use cases. But is Apple really the ones driving that narrative and that agenda on iOS? I would argue that I think I made a pithy, unfair comparison, but I think it is probably true that there are more interactions every day with Snap's AR ecosystem, their lenses and, and things like that, than all interactions with an AR kit powered app in a year. It's probably not exactly that stark, but I think my point is there is like the, the hardware is at least at the basic in terms of a smartphone that we, we came to know over the past 10 years is basically settled at this point. The cameras are extending it a bit, but uh, someone like an Apple is not necessarily the ones taking the advantage of those new capabilities. And it's not clear that those new camera capabilities are really in and of themselves going to keep people in the Apple ecosystem, particularly if Apple starts kicking off apps that people know and love. So it's an interesting, what might be happening, I'm actually just realizing this now, is that the smartphone hardware commoditization is the older story with kind of the Chinese ecosystem creating a spec, basically being on par with what even a Samsung and an Apple can do in many ways, although Apple still has this sort of chip lead in terms of uh, its uh, processors. But what's starting to come to the fore now is a similar thing happening at the operating system, app store, and services layer. And that, I think, is the more dangerous fight for specifically for Apple. I think Google is probably better positioned since their AI and cloud prowess is much better than Apple's. I think it's pretty safe to say. But I think what we're seeing is the smartphone hardware commoditized a few years ago, and we're playing that out now. But what's starting to rumble a bit with companies like Epic starting to poke around with what's going on with mini programs in, in WeChat in China, with ByteDance launching its own smartphone, with Snap and Minis, with Facebook has been trying to do this for years. I think the, the software and services layer, that's the new kind of the battle space. If that's really turning to commodity and, and Apple or even Google is unable to own that mindshare and that engagement in those use cases, then some very... I think good analysis of the smartphone industry over the last 10 years, which was that Apple and Google basically won the smartphone wars and anyone who's tried to get back in would flop like Microsoft or like Amazon's first attempt at the phone. But I think that was true up until the point where maybe soon it's not true anymore. I think you nailed it. And in terms of the experience moving to more software and all that and things being commoditized, it, something else that's being commoditized is actually software mm. itself, if I can put it that way. That's true. You you mentioned a company you're seeing, just to kick it off this point, you look a few years back, and I'm using a South African example, you'd have a lot of companies that do software development, that do to your typical software consultancy businesses. And that trend has shifted. You still get them. 
although they've been probably gobbled up by the bigger IT companies like Dimension Data, BCX and all that. But the shift in sort of software development world has moved more towards, if I can put it that way, product management and product development and architecturing software instead of actually the software engineering side. And it comes back to the commoditization point I was making. And it's a question to you as well. One company that has surprised us over the past couple of decades, and probably a big part to to Jeff Bezos, but also to Werner Fochels, is Amazon with AWS and how they've dominated the market of cloud computing, but not only cloud computing, but serverless and now codeless. Yeah, I think if the listeners haven't read this before, you should Google, maybe you can put it in the show notes, the the Amazon famous memo by an ex-Amazon engineer that was posted on Google Plus, something called like Amazon Platforms Rant. And it's a very funny documented. It's also very funny that it was posted on Google Plus, a very strange quirk of history. But basically it lays out the sort of operating system inside Amazon, which is this concept of teams that are autonomous, they're almost like cellular, they interact with each other by API, not by deep integrations, hard-coded mingling of of data stores. Everything is basically externalized via an API interface. It could be potentially broken off as an externally consumable service. So they have been, and this is, by the way, not simply limited to AWS. I think a lot of their fulfillment business, it's, a, it's different than software, it involves software, but basically everything Amazon does is they're looking for opportunities to take a thing that they may have had to build internally custom, figure out what the repeatable patterns are, figure out what a sort of generic version of that service or that capability would be that could be valued to other business units inside Amazon for very rapid internal innovation, but also that could be offered as a service to external developers. I think a really good example that should drive it home was, I think it was a couple months ago, we saw something called interactive video service from Amazon, which is essentially Twitch in a box. And actually I think the Twitch team is involved in, in, in even building that. And I think it starts to get to what you're saying here is like the cloud computing race that Amazon is dominating and they have good competition from Azure. I I happen to think Google is too far behind to matter that much in in this space, but the cloud is starting to creep up on software. And I'm not sure how many people fully recognize the threat. I think there's a lot of companies that think that they are safe because they occupy some niche in the SaaS world or in the, the infrastructure as a service and the other cloud providers, I think, have been educated by AWS in terms of whether they have a place in the world or not, which is basically the answer is no, unless you're a, an integrator for Amazon. But I think the software industry, SaaS, and then also companies whose moat is software that maybe not, they don't sell software, but let's say the, the primary thing that is keeping them in a differentiated position is the software that they've invested in building in-house, Amazon is starting to offer these primitives that are higher and higher level. They're offering technology to let you do machine learning without any machine learning expertise as a developer. They're letting you spin up an entire video streaming, your own version of a Twitch in IVS. They're gradually moving up from these low-level compute services to these managed services that are more domain-specific. And they basically allow you to essentially only write business logic. I think Werner had a slide at reInvent two years ago that said something like, in the future, all you will need to do is write business logic. And I think people 
they may have looked at and be like, oh, that's like marketing spin. And they want to try to tell people that it's, it's easy to use. But I interpreted that as a threat to the whole software industry, because if writing software is starting to become more and more a bunch of managed services spun up in a cloud formation script tied together with Lambda functions. And, and then even what comes beyond that, to your point about codeless and, and no code, what, what does that mean for, again, companies whose main business is selling software or even companies whose main advantage is the software they've invested in building? If a small team can basically recreate these things that may have taken a hundred developers 10 years ago with three or four people, that really changes fundamentally the landscape. It really is something that, that I think could totally alter everything we think we know about technology companies. Will there even be technology companies when software is, is as abundant as electricity? Or are they just companies now? And, and what happens to jobs like software development? What happens, what jobs become more important? Potentially software design. But yeah, that's, that is where Amazon, I think, is... Someone likes to, some people might think that the Shopify's biggest threat is Amazon.com and Amazon itself, let's say, it's not. starting to compete for those sellers. It's AWS. If they're not looking underneath their feet, they're missing, the, they're missing what's happening in front of them. Yeah, I think I, you, you nailed it perfectly. I think this is, and it's partly why I sympathize, but I also have a problem with the mantra that, and you see it a lot across the continent in Africa, where people are saying, teach kids to code, teach kids to code. And I, I'm yeah. like, that's brilliant, but don't punt it as if it's something that when they're adults, it's something they're going to do on a day-to-day basis because chances are they won't even be coding at that. Rather teach them logic, rather teach them processes, rather teach them how to think, etc. if you want them to move into designing software, if I can put it that way. That's why I said it seems like the trend would be more around how do you develop products and how do you build business logic, as you said, rather than the actual coding. Because you mentioned it, I think, when you mentioned, and we'll put it in the show notes, when you mentioned the Amazon note that was put on Google Plus about commoditizing sort of repetitive processes. Once something like Shopify has been figured out, what's to say that Amazon can't codify that and pack that as a container or something on AWS, which people can just deploy for for themselves. So instead of focusing on coding, rather focus on the next step, which is how do we develop products? Yeah, I think this is not to integrate software engineering and I have deep respect and get deep satisfaction working with extremely talented software engineers. It's I love working with them. They don't just bring coding to the table, they bring systems thinking to the table. And so I think teaching kids to code now with that in mind, I think is still super valuable. And I think the world is going to need a lot of systems thinkers going forward. But the, the, the task is going to fundamentally change. In the same way that you just take the, the sort of an analogy of the, the shift from on-prem to, to cloud. The, the difference, is it used to cost a million dollars to start a website in 1990, whatever. And now it, it scales with you. You don't need to buy servers. You don't need to have people sitting there making sure the servers are, are behaving. You just spin up EC2 instance. With serverless and with managed services that are starting to proliferate from Amazon and others, the, the stuff that you don't really need to do, or per- perhaps more precisely, all the things that only a few people can do, a small team can do so much more than they used to be able to. It really it changes fundamentally what, what we mean by software development. And I think to your point, Again, everything migrates up the stack as things become more commoditized. And as we go up the stack, 
the activities that are driving the value start to change. And so product design, business architecture, understanding customer needs, machine learning, those are the things that are going to be the new tools for the business builders of the future. But my warning even to those people and why everyone I think needs to to start to internalize a climate of constant change and, and accelerating changes, even those things could be automated as well. When you get to the, the point where you can say roughly what you want to a computer and that computer can basically build you a full stack, front-end, back-end services, get, pick the right machine learning models out of some marketplace and voila, there is your, your ride sharing in a box or your Twitch in a box or, or something we haven't even thought of, then it totally changes the economics of software. It totally changes the kind of skill sets that are required. And particularly when you've got, you're paying only for what you use. That's something in serverless that I think is going to be more and more obvious to people as I think they spin up projects, maybe that are greenfield in the enterprise, as opposed to ones that are convoluted and mixed with kind of older microservices architectures, but like the pure serverless architectures, you can almost get to the point where every sale you make, let's say as a, as like a key transaction can have an exact dollar amount in terms of the end-to-end cloud costs. And you can actually start to manage down to the function or down to the the part of the business unit and manage that cost. I think Simon Wardley calls this a FinDev. Uh, It's a totally new discipline. It's a totally new type of economics that I think is going to really fundamentally change how software is built, what software means, how defensible it is, and in companies, like what kind of skill sets you need to adapt And it's not just, can you do something? I think some people, when they look at like Amazon Honeycode as an example, their new code, uh, low code GUI uh, editor. Yeah, they look at that and they say, okay, I'm not going to make use of that in my business right now. But I think where competition in the global market comes into play is if you have some hang up about doing something with no code, but a small upstart competitor with an interesting customer need insight, for example, is able to do this, the thing that took you two years to build can do it in two months or less. That really, that's how all these things come to be. It's not that all these enterprises will become no code overnight, but once one of the banks in America had a mobile check deposit, taking a picture of it, it was like six months to a year before everybody had one. And probably that, that first startup that was pitching that, mobile deposit functionality was probably banging their head against the wall for six to eight years trying to get the banks to listen. But once competition kicks in, once your competitors understand how to use these weapons against you, that's when it doesn't matter if you realize it or not, because your competitors will. That's so true, man. And really, as we wind up this episode, it's a fascinating thing. And I didn't think of it the way you just put it. It's also the things that we think are next could also be disrupted, like the whole codeless, et cetera. And it's something that's come to my mind because I was playing around with open AI and their text, uh, AI dictator. I think it's GPT-3, it's called. And it's just fascinating what it can do and what you feed it and what kind of human readable text it comes up with after you give it a, a few parameters and texts and to learn from as far as machine learning is concerned. So I'm, I'm really excited about what the future holds. And thank you very much for taking time out to be with us, man. Yeah, man, it was great. Thanks for having me. 
Remember to tell your friends, family, and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. And subscribe get notified on new episodes and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web.